Well, we started, we're in the middle of a teaching series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you have a Bible with you or a phone or a tablet that has a Bible app on it, you can take any of those things out. The text is also going to be up here on the screen tonight as we just go through this letter of the Apostle Paul verse by verse. We're getting to chapter 2 and we're going to look at, at verses 11 through 18. So Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 tonight. I'll read the text for us, and then we'll pray, asking God to help us, and we'll dive in, okay? All right, so here you go. This is God's word for you tonight, no matter what's happened to you today or how you feel right now. This is true and hopeful, so give it your attention, okay? Beginning in verse 11, Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." Okay, will you join me in praying, asking God to help us understand this portion of his word. Father, we come before you now asking that you would come and work, that you would send your spirit into this place, into our hearts, into our minds, and work renewing grace. It would, you would work joy in our hearts, that you would work transformation in our outward obedience and our outward lifestyles, even this week, through what we experience here tonight under the authority of your word. Lord, we are coming from all over the place tonight, not just geographically, but emotionally and spiritually and psychologically some of us have had rough weeks with sick families and everything's been thrown out of whack some of us have kind of had a normal week that's been ho-hum some of us might be doing great father but wherever we're coming from lord tonight we pray that again you would remind us whether we're here knowing we're believers whether we're here exploring christianity or whether we're not sure what we think that you would remind us that you exist that you are good that you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus and that you are at work right now through the church, a community of people who've placed their trust in you. Father, these things are too lofty for us to grasp on our own. They're too lofty for us to understand if all we have is ourselves and our own brains tick-tocking back and forth trying to make sense of it all. So, Spirit, come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time I read texts, not every time, a lot of the times when I read texts in the Bible about unity, uh, about oneness, my mind goes back to that 1980s music video that was sort of a who's who of popular 1980s pop singers. And if you were alive in the 80s, I was sort of, this was just coming into like my pop culture consciousness at the time. The We Are the World video. We are the world, we are the children. I mean, like, the cheese factor is off the charts on the We Are the World video. But I would, like, just become a, a fan of Michael Jackson in, like, you know, 1987, 19. There's nothing like a white kid in West Texas dancing to Michael Jackson, thriller and bad, in the early 80s, late 80s. But, nevertheless, 
this video is a cheesy though it may be, it's, it's this huge sort of pop culture demonstration of unity, right? It's got all these pop stars, Bruce Springsteen and Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones and Cindy Lauper and all these other stars at the time. United, arm in arm, singing, we are the world, we are the children. I don't, I don't even remember, remember why they made the video in the first place or why the song was written. But the purpose, I do remember, was to display unity. And I don't think you have to be super cynical to know that that unity was most likely a contrived unity. <laughs> you know, I doubt that all of those pop stars were best friends, that they really had sort of a unity of beliefs, a unity of thinking, and a unity of action. It was a, it was a unity that was concocted probably partly to make a little bit of profit economically and to make a statement. Um, a lot of the time, in my experience, looking at the world and looking in my own life, unity is something that we try to concoct. It's something that we try to fabric fabricate. It's something that we try to sort of piece together, but there's not really any vibrancy to it. There's not really any life to it. That's true in things like We Are the World videos. It's true in other aspects of our culture. And Sadly, it's oftentimes true in the church. If you've been in the church for a while, you probably know that unity is not something that comes by easily. It's not something that you see often. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter 2,000 years ago to a number of churches, particularly the church in Ephesus, which is present-day Turkey. It was a major metropolitan area where a lot of new Christians who had just been converted were forming this body of Christ, this church, and they wanted to know what it looks like to live in a society where they are in the vast minority following Jesus. So Paul wrote them this letter, and one of the major focuses of this letter is the idea that the church is one. The church is to be united. And uh, tonight, in the text that I just read, Paul really begins to get into that idea. He's going to talk about it more in the coming verses, in the coming chapters, but really this text is one of the most important theological foundations for the idea of the church's unity of the church being one. Paul uses the language for the church of a new humanity, one new humanity. And so that's what we want to talk through a little bit together tonight. But before we jump in, there's one thing I've got to tell you about just for a minute so that you have an idea of what Paul's getting at here 2,000 years ago. When Paul wrote this letter, the people that were Christians in the church in Ephesus were by and large Gentiles. By the way, if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So from a Jewish perspective, there's two types of people in the world. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. Most of the people in most of the churches Paul planted in the first century were Gentiles. They didn't grow up um, as literal, physical descendants of Abraham, which is what the Jewish people are. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll know that the, you need to know that the, the Old Testament is largely focused on this nation, which is really just an extended family, uh, the family of Abraham that God calls to himself to be his people. And he calls them to be his people for the sake of the world. Not so that the world would, be the world would perish and Jews only would be saved. No, he calls these people to serve the world and to love the world and to bless the world. But over the years, over the centuries, the Jews had sort of missed the, po the point there. And uh, some bad things had taken place by the time Jesus comes and by the time Paul's writing. And so Paul, when he writes all of his letters, when you read the New Testament... You read a letter from Paul, you just need to know that the major pastoral and theological issue that that church was dealing with, with was, was the issue of Jewish-Gentile relations. Um, should Gentiles have to live like Jews in order to be Christians? And how are the Jews going to handle all these, what they consider to be pagan Gentiles, coming into my church and taking large parts of my tradition? 
It's impossible for us to understand what a big deal this was 2,000 years ago in churches in cities like Ephesus. It's impossible, but we do need to understand that it was a huge, huge, huge deal to them. It caused all sorts of friction. It caused all sorts of relational tension. It caused all sorts of disunity. So Paul's writing to a church telling them to be unified, knowing full well that this church has literal racial strife and conflict within its walls, within its community. But nevertheless, Paul believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to bring unity even out of such a rough and tumble situation as that one was, the relationship between first century Jews and Gentiles. So tonight as we think about the idea of unity, I want to break this passage up into two big parts, two big chunks. I want to show you first two humanities divided, two humanities divided, and second, one humanity united, okay? Two humanities divided, one humanity united, all right? So look with me at the text, verse 11, 12, 13. Paul writes here from the perspective of a Jew, okay? Stay with me. Paul was a Jewish man. He says in Philippians 3 that both of his parents were Jews. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's writing here from the perspective of the Jew about the Gentiles, okay? Look what he says about them in verse 11. You, that is you Gentiles, were once in the flesh, not circumcised. We called you, and this is meant to be sort of a derogatory term, the uncircumcision. And then down in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Before you came into the church, before you believed, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul's painting a portrait of what it was like to be a Gentile before they knew Jesus Christ in the first century A.D. And what he's saying is that it was not a good situation to be in. They literally were in darkness. Their, their minds were not enlightened. Their hearts were hardened. They were cut off from the revealing grace that God had shown to the people of Israel, the family of Abraham. That's basically what he's getting at here. And really the governing idea about the Gentiles from Paul's perspective in these first few verses is this idea that they, they had no hope. They were, they were without God in the world before they met Jesus. That's one of the two humanities, okay, the Gentiles. My brother this week was telling me about this documentary that he watched on Netflix um, about North Korea. And uh, he mentioned, and I had seen this before, that you know, there's all these satellite images in this documentary of North Korea, um, I guess at nighttime from space. And it shows you know, Southeast Asia and South Korea and China, and there's lights everywhere like you would expect. And then you see North Korea, and it's like this huge black blotch on the surface of the globe. There's, there's no lights there. And Andrew talked about, my brother, how in the documentary, it, it, one of the things that they mentioned was that, um, um, what, what did he say? Basically, basic vaccinations, et cetera, that cause, if the, that if they're not received, lead to blindness, are just not done at all in North Korea. So that the percentage of blind people is like 400 times higher than it is in the developed world. Basically, North Korea is a bad spot to be born. And, and as he was saying this, it struck me, you know, as I was reflecting on this sermon for tonight, that if you just happen to be born in a place like North Korea, you could almost for sure say of yourself, I have no hope. I'm never going to get out of here. And the sad thing about it is that oftentimes they don't even realize the situation that they're in, the plight 
that they're under with respect in comparison to the rest of the world, especially the civilized world. That's exactly what Paul's saying here about Gentile people, about everyone in the world who was not Jewish before they met Jesus. They were without hope and without God in the world, and what's saddest of all is that oftentimes they didn't even know it. But Paul speaks not just about the Gentiles. He talks also about the Jews. And really he tells us, in somewhat subtle ways here, that the Jews weren't that much better off, although they had received many more blessings from God than the Gentiles did. Where is that in the text? Well, look in verse 11 again. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by who? People that are called the circumcision, that is Jewish people. Which is, now here's the key, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now why would Paul say that? That might be strange to us. He's saying here, really, that the Jewish people were outwardly circumcised. That is, they had received the outward external sign of their own religious membership in their community. And that's basically it. They had, they had sort of the outer marks of, religi of religiosity and knowledge and status and standing with God. But their heart, their inner life, was fundamentally no different from the inner life of the Gentile who knows nothing about God. So Paul's sort of making a, a slight jab here at the Jews when he says that we called ourselves the circumcision, but it's just a circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Let me try to make that clear. Paul's laying out here what's a universal principle for all of us. There's a big difference. Listen, there's a big difference between external religious conformity and inward heart change. There's a big difference between being in church every Sunday and getting baptized and knowing your catechism and having a, a transformative relationship with Jesus Christ. And see, what had happened to the Jews over the centuries, Paul says here and he says much more clearly elsewhere, is that they had thought that simply because they were a part of this particular family that God chose, simply because they were, they were physical descendants of Abraham, they were legitimate, they were okay, they were good to go with God, and what's more, on top of that, everyone who wasn't from the world that I'm from, the world that I'm from, isn't good to go with God, and isn't good to go with me, just because they're not from the world that I'm from. You with me? So the Jews had come to see of themselves over a period of centuries by the time Jesus walked the earth and by the time Paul writes this letter that they're good to go simply because they're Jewish, simply because they, they meet certain external standards and markers. And the Gentiles aren't good to go. They're not okay with God. And they were right about that. They were just wrong about the reasoning. They thought the Gentiles were not okay with God simply because they weren't Jewish. You see, they had missed the heart entirely. They had forgotten the internal life, and focus solely on the external life. And so these two humanities, the Jews and the Gentiles, at the time Paul wrote this letter, really couldn't stand each other. There was enmity, there was anger, there was animosity, there was jealousy, there was bitterness, there were constant disputes, especially in the first century when Paul wrote this letter, okay? The Jews thought of the Gentiles, you're pagans, you're worthless, you're no good, you're ignorant, you don't have a clue, and the Gentiles thought of the Jews, oftentimes, you know, your religion is very quaint, it's very antiquated, it's, it's kind of cute, it's one of many options, but I'm not really going to take it seriously. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that these two humanities were made into one in Jesus. We're going to get to that in just a minute, but first let me talk to you about this for one second. Think about it. I believe that that story 
of two divided humanities is not something that was only relevant in the first century with Jews and Gentiles. In fact, I think that that story has, uh, has and is playing itself out in the human story and in your story, even today, in all sorts of different ways. Um, the meta-narrative of the human story, by and large, is one of division. And most people fall into one of these two camps that we can, for our purposes tonight, label the Jewish camp or the Gentile camp. I wonder what camp you fall into. Here's the Jewish camp. You might be able to discern where I'm going with this. The Jewish camp are the folks who grow up in the conservative religious home. They are taught the Bible and read the Bible. They go to church most Sundays. They vote Republican. They're oftentimes white, and most of their friends are white. Um, the people that they're around are much like them. They enjoy the same things. They despise the same things. They get excited by the same things. They're disgusted by the same things. And they're frankly skeptical, although they might not say this. If you examine their, if you give them Harry Potter truth serum, they're going to tell you that they're, they're skeptical about the idea that people that aren't just like them are really places and people where God is at work. Um, they sort of become truncated in their view of themselves and other cultures. They think that their way is the only way. Uh, they think that their external confirmation and conformity to certain religious standards and maxims makes them okay and makes other people not okay. It's a very common world in South Texas. The other world is the world of the Gentiles. And they're the world that even today still think that religious people, particularly serious religion, religious people, are quaint and outdated especially when it comes to things like sexual ethics and certain norms and standards that Christians are supposed to hold. They don't really take any religion seriously except for the idea that to take religion seriously is dangerous. Um, they, they kind of flirted with various religions. They might think it's cool to say I'm spiritual but not religious. And uh, they don't really, haven't really studied the Bible very seriously, but they know that it's not true. Those are the two major types of people that exist in the world today. The, the religious types, the traditional types, the moral types, and the irreligious types, the non-traditional types, the skeptical types. That's exactly, pretty much, bottom line, in the heart, what Paul's getting at when he talks about the Jew and Gentile issue in the first century. Everybody falls into one of those two camps, and sometimes we skip and jump from one camp to another depending on how it suits us in our certain circumstances. The great thing about the gospel is that it brings these two camps together in unity. But apart from the gospel, you get two humanities divided. But I want to show you next the one humanity united. How does Jesus change this? He says the Gentiles were alienated. They had no hope. They were without God in the world. The Jews were arrogant and condescending and boastful. They relied on external religious conformity only. But, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Now notice there, look at that. Paul doesn't say um, he made peace. And he doesn't say he brings peace. He says Jesus is our peace. So, listen, in the hostilities that divided the Jews and the Gentiles 2,000 years ago, and in the hostilities that divide all sorts of racial groups today, and particularly the religious and the irreligious groups that I've been talking about, those hostilities only cease through the shed blood of Jesus Christ 
on the cross. And in the rest of these verses, Paul works out what that looks like and how that takes place. So look with me there. First he says in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace, who, Jesus, has made us, that is Jews and Gentiles, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall, the dividing wall of hostility. So Paul's right there. What is the dividing wall of hostility? Okay, follow with me in the passage. Very next verse tells us, he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, the law of commandments and ordinances. So the dividing wall for Jews and Gentiles 2,000 years ago is the law of God. And Paul's saying that Jesus in his death broke that down. He abolished it. Now he doesn't mean that the entire law of God is abolished. He's not saying here that the Ten Commandments, for example, are no longer valid. What Paul means, rather, is that the law as something that separates a certain people group from every other people group, namely the Jews, is no longer valid or credible. The things in the law that made Jewish people Jewish before God, that made Jewish people distinct, are now no longer functioning. They've been nullified. They've been abolished. So Paul's thinking here about things like circumcision and festival days and keeping Sabbath. These things no longer have any relevance, he's saying, when it comes to a relationship with God because in Jesus they were abolished. Okay, So the dividing law that's been abolished that has brought these two people groups together is the law. Okay, you with me? Now how? How then is that abolished? How then is it abolished? 15, we've already seen that. In 13, it's through the blood of Christ. And in 14, we see that it's in his flesh. And in where 16, we see that he might reconcile us to God in one body through the what? The cross, thereby killing the hostility. So listen, here's the rub, main idea. You don't hear anything else, listen to this. At the cross of Jesus Christ, multiple things are taking place. The first and most important thing that's taking place is that at the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, in space and in time, in history, when Jesus died on the cross, he was, in his death, making men and God friends again. But more than that, Jesus was, in his death, making men and men friends again. He's knocking down, verse 16, the dividing wall between man and God, and he's, by his blood, knocking down these dividing walls that in that day so separated Jews and Gentiles, and that in our day <coughs> so separate the people that we're unfamiliar with and skeptical of, skeptical of and the religious and the irreligious types. Jesus, in his death, knocks down all of the dividing walls between us and God and between us and others. How does the cross do that? Here's how. The cross tells you, if you're breathing right now, the cross tells you that you are so sinful that Jesus had to die on the cross for you. That is true of everyone, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether this is the first time you've ever heard a sermon from a Christian pastor or whether you've never missed a Sunday of church in your life, Jesus had to die for you. But the cross also tells you that Jesus loves all of you so much that he would die for you. Your sin is so bad that Jesus had to die for you in your place so that you don't get punished. But Jesus' love is so great that he was willing to die for you, all of you, so that you can be saved. You see, the cross levels the playing field because it tells you 
No matter where you're from, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter how many times you've been to church, no matter what your religion is, that you're bad enough that you needed Jesus to die a very terrible death on the cross, and you're loved enough by God that Jesus was willing to do that just for you. That's how the cross levels the playing field. That's how the cross tears down the hostility that exists between men and other men, between nation and nation, between tribe and tribe, between the religious and the irreligious. So, Jesus knocks down the law, ending anything that made Jews and Gentiles distinct. In his death, he brings together again both God and man and also men and other men because he tells us that really, fundamentally, in God's eyes, we're all the same. We all are in need of grace, and we all have been offered grace through the cross. And what does that result in? Let me show you one more thing here. What does that result in? Verse 16, or sorry, yeah, 15. He abolishes the commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So the result of the wall being broken down in Christ's death, the result of what Paul's talking about here is a new humanity. You see that? It's, it's a new humanity that follows the way of peace. It's, it's a new humanity that exists in the world for the world. It's a new humanity that isn't consisting of Gentiles who have to become Jewish, but consists of Gentiles and Jews and people of every tribe, tongue, and nation placing their trust in Jesus and entering into this new community, the new humanity, the oneness that Jesus alone brings. The result of Jesus' death on the cross is you are forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future, by the Holy Father, but also you enter into a new relationship with other people who are in the same boat. It's, it's sort of like um, you know, when people get married. When people get married, uh, the Jones and the Smith families um, marry off a daughter and a son, and that wedding takes place. It's, it's not that Mrs. Jones is going into the Smith family, although if you think that, you probably need to come see me for some marriage counseling. Uh, you're not entering your spouse's family, so to speak, when you get married. You're, you're as it were, creating a whole new family. Yeah, your families are going to influence you, and there's going to be in-laws issues. We all need counseling if we're married, yes. But you're, you're, creating, a, you're creating something new. You're, you're leaving what was, le what was your past. You're, you're leaving behind what wants to find you, and you're, you're creating something new, a new family. And, and I think that's similar to what Paul's saying here. So what does that, what does that mean? For us now, this idea that, that in the death of Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our relationship with God is re reconciled and restored, but also our relationships with one another. Tribes and tribes, nations and nations, persons and persons are restored, are reconciled. What does that look like? Let me give you four practical admonitions, four pieces of application, and then I'm going to tell you one quick story, and we're done. Okay? Four things. Four applications for the new humanity. Um, I think a number of things we can see here. Uh, well, first of all, let me just say this. This is the gr grand scale application. I think one thing we can take is that one of the main signifiers, according to the Bible, that the gospel is at work in a place among a people is when you see people who've never been around other people that aren't like them before. Or, moreover, when you see people that really can't stand each other and haven't ever really liked each other coming together 
and spending time with one another and enjoying one another. When you, when you see people that have no earthly reason to ever hang out, hanging out because of their unity in Jesus by faith, that's when you see the Gospels at work. So what does that mean for you now? Four things. Okay, real quick. One, the Gospel produces in us a humility. A humility about our own cultural backgrounds. The Gospel tell, tells us and, and tears down in us this idea that my way and my past and my background are superior. Because when we, tend to, when we tend to idolize our own cultural backgrounds, our own assumptions, we tend to demonize everyone else's cultural backgrounds and assumptions. The gospel, it, it gives you a more realistic view of yourself. It tells you that some things about being white, middle-class Americans, for example, is good, and some things are terrible. And you need to learn from poor Asian brothers and sisters and wealthy Western European brothers and sisters. So it, it grants to us, first and foremost, a humility. Do you see that humility in your life? Do you see a humility about where you're from? A humility about many of the preconceived notions you have about the way the world is? That's what the Gentiles and the Jews were experiencing in Ephesians, and that's what Christians experience today. So the first practical thing is that when the gospel's working, it produces in us a humility. So be humble. <laughs> be humble. Second, the gospel produces in us, when it's at work, a desire to learn from people who aren't like us. In your life, do you more often or less often have a posture of a learner or a posture of the teacher in your relationship with other people? Now, that's going to differ, obviously, depending on the nature of the relationship you're thinking about. But oftentimes, the Christian should adopt with other brothers and sisters the posture of a learner. Because... If what Paul's saying here is true and we're all one and the playing field has been leveled and we're all sinners and Jesus died for all of us and so we're all equal and we're all one new humanity, um, if that's true, then there are many things that others have to teach me that I'm presently ignorant of. And so it would do me well to listen, especially to the people who are least like you in your church. Third, when the gospel is at work, it produces a beautiful diversity. A beautiful diversity in the midst of unity. Not diversity for its own sake, but diversity for the, sense of, for the sake of unity. Uh, when the gospel is at work in a place, the church should resemble the diversity of the place in which God has planted it. And so to see Hispanic brothers and sisters and Korean brothers and sisters and white brothers and sisters is a great thing. To see different socioeconomic backgrounds is a great thing. It's something that we should expect. It's something that we long for at Christ's church. So keep that in mind. Fourth, and finally, when the gospel is at work, it produces in us both a willingness and a desire to pursue friendships that are not easy. What do I mean by that? Let me just give you my own example. For me, it's really easy to be friends with people that have the exact same interests as me. Like I like, there's like three things in the world I like, other than my family, who I usually like. Um, I'm just kidding. I always like my family. Um, I like sports. I like books. Uh, I like music. And if you like sports, book, and music, you're probably going to, we're going to get along great. And we're going to enjoy one another's company. I'd love to talk to you about this book or that book or this game or that game or this new album over a glass of wine, over dinner, whatever. It's going to be easy for me to be friends with you. But if you don't have any of those things in common with me, it's going to be really hard. And I'm actually going to have to work 
to get to know you and to be in community with you and to relate to you. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that when you're a Christian, you have more in common with someone who's completely different than you as far as likes and hobbies than the person that you have most in common with as far as likes and hobbies but is not yet a believer. And so you're, in a very real sense, reflecting the truth of the oneness that the gospel brings when you're pursuing people in friendship that aren't really at all like you. That's why I think it's, I think it's actually, this also always used to really discourage me, but I'm actually kind of encouraged now as the Spirit continues to sanctify me when, you know, we'll hang out with some new friends, not people at church necessarily, but just anyone who's a Christian. And, you know, then we're like, yeah, there wasn't a lot of relational connection there, you know. But we just we continue to pursue it, and they continue to pursue us. And over time, you know, we don't really have much in common at all. We might be in completely different stages of life, but we love each other. We understand each other. We get one another. It's harder work, but it's so much more beautiful when it takes place. That is a reflection of our faith in the unity that the gospel brings. So are we seeing that? Are you seeing that in your life? That's something I would challenge you towards. Last thing, here's a story that I heard this week, a couple weeks ago. One of my friends is planning a church down in San Antonio, central San Antonio. He's an Anglican believer, and uh, he... Um, is actually, because much of the Anglican church in America has gone very liberal, he is actually under the authority of a bishop in Nigeria. So he is an indigenous missionary to San Antonio, Texas from Nigeria, which is amazing, even though he's never set foot in Nigeria except for one time. And he was telling me this story about his bishop, who's a Nigerian believer, a Nigerian brother. And uh, the village that he was from had, which is typical in African communities, sadly, had uh, like almost a genocidal level of tension and violence take place when he was a young man with a young family. And his family was exposed to this, and his wife was murdered, and his children were murdered. He was a Christian at the time. And about 10 years later, he went to preach in another village as in his role as a bishop. And this village was a village that had a, was on the other side of the wall, so to speak, had all sorts of tension with the village that he grew up in. And yet he went into this church and began preaching, and after the service was speaking to various people, and he had told his story in the sermon, and a man came up to him. You know where this is going, right? A man came up to him afterwards and said, you know, um, I realized as you were telling your story that, that I'm one of the men that killed your wife and your children, that murdered them in cold blood, and I need you to forgive me. And this African bishop, who at that moment, had to, had to spend more to follow Jesus than you and I would probably ever have to spend, turned around and ran out of that church. And he went to the top of the nearest hill and screamed as loud as he could at God for 15 minutes. And then he ran back down the hill into the church and looked that man in the eye and forgave him. Only the gospel, only the death of Jesus, only his blood tearing down the dividing walls of hostility can produce that sort of forgiveness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy in forgiving us of our sin through the death of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that also, also at the cross, you enable us to have new relationships with one another, particularly with people whom we have no prior affinity towards, whom we might in fact have hated in our former lives, just as was the case with many of the Christians in the church in Ephesus in the first century. 
Father, the gospel enables us to be one new humanity. And only the gospel does that, because only the gospel tells us that we're much, much worse than we think. Than we think. So bad that Jesus had to die, but much, much more love than we've ever dreamed. So loved that Jesus was willing to die. And that's not just true of us, but it's true of every human who walks this planet right now. And so, Father, we pray that you would indeed grant to us as a church and to us as individuals a resounding humility, a resounding willingness to come out of our comfort zones and seek unity in very practical, tangible ways by making friends with people that we might not otherwise be friends with if they weren't Christians and we weren't Christians, by exercising humility and seeking to learn about people and cultures that are different from our own, by recognizing our own cultural blind spots, Lord, and knowing that you are right now at work not just in us individually, but you are at work in us as part of this community. You've put people around us who are different and who are going to rub off the rough edges of our lives. And oftentimes, Father, that's painful for us. And so we pray that as your spirit continues to sanctify us, as you continue to move here at Christ Church and indeed throughout the world, you would help us to see what you're doing and that you would help us to be a part and not a problem towards the unity that you long to see established in your church and that Jesus himself has bought with his blood. We love you and we praise you for saving us and for saving us not just as individuals but as a people to be together now and on into eternity. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name and in the power of his spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and see Revelation 5, 13.